married. Um, and so today can be an especially hard day for you also. And so I just, I just want to recognize um, the Lord knows your, your sorrow. Um, he knows your pain on days like today. And, and I do hope that he would be near to you uh, and comfort you on, on today's day. Um, and so, so j- just a happy Mother's Day. Um, and may the Lord be, be a comforter to those um, who need it, especially today. Um, the other thing I, want, I just want to stay, say here at the outset, um, in, in Virginia, here where we are, things are, are rapidly changing. And so just kind of a, a heads up about next week, we are still planning, um, Lord willing, to, to meet together in the, in the form of a, a drive-in service. I mentioned that last week. Um, but since we made that decision, the governor, Governor Northam, has, has um, seemed to indicate that by next Sunday, um, religious groups will have exemptions when it comes to, to meeting together. And so it may be that next week, with the governor's um, permission, we may be gathering or have the, the ability to gather together um, in person, of course, with, with all the social distancing um, stipulations in place. And so I'm going to be meeting with some church leaders this week. Pray for us for wisdom, um, but, but stay tuned. So whether it's the phone tree or, or Facebook, we will make very clear um, how next week's going to work, um, whether we do continue with the drive-in service or if we um, make plans to, to gather um, together corporately. Um, we will let you know. Regardless, whichever one of those we do decide to, to pursue, we will, Lord willing, have this um, streaming Facebook Live uh, available for those who aren't comfortable coming out um, or, or too far away to come. So, um, Lord willing, Facebook, this will still be uh, in place for the, for the coming weeks. Um, but, but again, stay tuned. Uh, it's, it's very exciting to think about even, even the limited gathering that, that might be possible in the coming weeks. It's, it's very exciting. Um, and so stay tuned. We will um, we'll use wisdom and discernment and, and make a decision that we think would, would best serve our body. Um, and so stay tuned for that. Um, well, let me, as we begin this morning, let me um, read from Matthew chapter 6. Uh, so this is a familiar passage I'm going to read for us together. Uh, and then I'm going to pray um, as, we, as we begin. So Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading uh, in verse 5. So this is part of Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount. And so, so I'm going to pick up in the middle of that. So Matthew 6, beginning in verse 5, Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, let's, let's pray together this morning as we begin. 
Father, we do approach you as our Father, as one who cares for us, as one who knows what we need, um, knows what we need better than we do all the time. Um, and so we're thankful that we do have a Father who cares for us. Um, and we're thankful, as, as this prayer reminds us at the end, that our trespasses have been forgiven us because of what Jesus has done for us. And so we're thankful for the forgiveness of sins that is ours, the forgiveness of sins that, that enables us to approach you as Father. We are accepted and, and loved and adopted as your children because of Christ. In Christ, we are made your children. And so we're thankful for the gospel of Christ that, that, that tells us that he died for us and was buried and was raised again the third day. And so we, we rejoice in the fellowship we have with you and with one another and Lord, we just want to make the request of this prayer on our behalf. And so we, we do ask that, that your kingdom would come. Lord, would you use us as, as your people to, to be your kingdom representatives? And so would we speak up for justice? Would we um, love mercy? Would we walk humbly before you in this world as your representatives? And so we pray that your kingdom um, would come and be established here on earth as it is in heaven. Would your rule extend uh, over the earth and cover the earth as water the seas, and, and would it be through the spread of, of your gospel um, to the ends of the earth? Uh, Lord, we pray for, for your people who are in severe need now all over the world, but specifically in our, our nation as a result of, of this crisis. We pray that you would meet the needs of your people. Um, would, you, would you use whatever means necessary uh, to provide for your people? Um, keep us dependent on you for all that we need. And Lord, I do pray that you would uh, forgive us our sins, intentional and unintentional of this past week, Lord, when we have failed to love you as we ought, when we've used our words in ways that, that were intended to hurt others and not love and not build up and encourage um, things that we've left unsaid, things that we left undone that, that we ought to have said or done. Would you forgive us? We, we fall short regularly of, of the life that we're called to live, and, and we are dependent on your mercy and forgiveness. And so we, we ask forgiveness for all of our sins, knowing that for Christ's sake, you have already forgiven them. Um, and so, Lord, we want to continue to repent, so continue to show us our need for you, our, our need to repent and turn from sins. I uh, thank you that you've not left us alone, but have given us your Spirit, who is constantly conforming us and transforming us into the image of our older brother, Christ himself. And then lastly, Lord, I pray that you would uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Would you protect us? Lord, I think of um, all, of, all of your people, especially our, our, our young believers, our new believers. Lord, would you protect them from evil, guard them, um, preserve them, sustain their faith. So, um, Lord, would you do that for, for their sake and for your sake. Um, Lord, we're thankful to be your people, and we do uh, long for the day when, when we can gather again here in this location. Um, but more than that, we, we long for the day when we, uh, along with all of our brothers and sisters of all the ages, um, will be gathered together in your presence, um, never to part again. And so we pray for that day, and we, we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Um, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing our, our sermon series on the work of the Spirit. We're looking at the, the work of the Spirit, this, this Holy Spirit series. Um, and so this week is the, the fourth week that we're going to be, be looking at it. Um, last week, if, if you weren't with us, 
Uh, we looked at the, the Spirit as the mark of the transition from, from Old Covenant to New Covenant. So the Spirit as the evidence of this great transition and the Spirit as, as the gift and the, the sign of this New Covenant. Um, the week before that, we looked at, well, actually the first, the, the two weeks before that, we looked at the two um, main uh, functions or purposes of the Spirit that, that Jesus talks about in John 16 when he's in this upper room discourse with his disciples. And he says that the Spirit's going to glorify me. And so we looked at the role of the Spirit to glorify Christ, and then secondly, the, the role of the Spirit to convict the world. And so this week, our, our fourth week, we are going to be looking at the work of the Spirit. Um, and, and what we're going to talk about this week, I, I, I'm, I'm talking about what I am this week because I wanted to take this week and connect it with what we talked about last week. And so last week, we, we talked about, as I mentioned, that the new covenant work of the Spirit, uh, specifically we looked at in, in, in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, um, actually, we didn't look in Jeremiah, but in Ezekiel and in Joel, these, these new covenant promises of, of making alive and, and putting the Spirit within these new covenant people. And, and I wanted to take those promises and show how they connect with what Jesus promises that the Spirit will do, specifically in a conversation that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus that's recorded in John chapter 3. And so if you'll turn to John chapter 3, I'm going to read... Um, here at the outset, I'm going to read verses 1 through 21, and we're going to see that what Jesus explains here in John 3 is what was promised in this making alive that was going to accompany the, the giving of the Spirit in the new covenant. So Jesus is actually saying, here's what the Spirit's going to do, and it's actually the, the exact thing that was promised in the new covenant. And so John chapter 3, I'm going to begin in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 21. So you can follow along. Um, Or you can just listen. So John 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, for, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be, play, may be, be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let me, let me pray for us um, as, as we begin. Uh, Father, I, I thank you for uh, this passage, for this conversation that, that we get to listen in on and, and the, the great encouraging truths, the, the deep, uh, majestic, divinely inspired truths that, that we get to um, partake in and, and think about because of this recorded conversation. So I pray that we would um, have our minds expanded and our hearts expanded um, in, in thankfulness to you for what you've done for us in, in the new birth. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, uh, this morning, the, the title of the sermon is um, The Spirit Gives New Life. The Spirit Gives New Life. And so in this, this fourth week of the work of the Spirit, the work that we're going to focus on is the, the work of the new birth or, or regeneration, as it's sometimes referred to. And the main point that I want you to leave with today is simply that the Holy Spirit is the source of the new birth. The Holy Spirit is the source of, of being born from above, as some translations say. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes men and women who are dead in their sins and trespasses to be born again. He is the, the source of this new life, this new birth. And so we're going to work through three main points, which, which all, are all here in John chapter 3. Um, but, but we're going to kind of jump off of, of these this, this text and, and cover some other texts also. But, but here's the three main points that we're going to work through. First, we're going to see the necessity of the new birth. Second, we're going to see the source of the new birth, which hopefully you know the answer to that one already. And then third, we're going to see the effects of the new birth. And so we'll see the necessity, the source, and the effects of the new birth. So let's start there first with the necessity of the new birth. So look there in, in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus lays out the necessity of the new birth, and, and there's not any confusion surrounding it. Jesus answers, verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, so that, that's clear. That's the necessity. Jesus says, unless this happens, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, verse 3 comes, comes within a particular context. And so we see up in verses 1 and 2, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and begins his conversation. Notice when, when Nicodemus came, he, he began the conversation by, by saying, by telling Jesus, hey, we know something about you. You see that in, in, verse, in verse 2? We know, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God. So, so that's how Nicodemus begins the conversation. I, we know something about you, that, you, that you're, you're a, a rabbi who's been sent by God. And it is to the statement that Nicodemus makes that Jesus responds with verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, in, in, this, in this interchange, as it begins, he's making perfectly clear to Nicodemus that, that his understanding or what he thinks he knows concerning Jesus falls far short of what is actually true about Jesus. And so he wants Nicodemus to know that what you think you know about me, you actually have no clue. And it's not that Jesus is wrong only about, it's not that Nicodemus is only wrong about Jesus. Jesus extends his misunderstanding to further, though it starts with the idea of Jesus. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you don't, not only do you not understand me, you cannot even see 
the kingdom of God unless something happens to you, something drastic. Which tells us that, that the current state, the natural state of Nicodemus is that of, of, of ignorance. He can't understand who Jesus is. He can't know anything about him. And, and more than that, he can't know anything about the kingdom unless he's born again. According to Jesus, one, one commentator says, Nicodemus and his fellow Jews cannot see God's kingdom apart from the supernatural birth. Unless their eyes are opened, they remain spiritually blind. In other words, this tells us that human understanding or human wisdom cannot penetrate the things of God, which is a problem. That should concern you. It's a problem that in our natural state, we can't, we can't accurately penetrate or know anything about God or, or Jesus or the kingdom. It's a problem because God is the maker of this world. God is the creator of all things, including Nicodemus and, and every one of us. He is our maker, and if we want to know him, if we want to know his intentions for, for the world, his intentions for our lives, if we want to know his designs for, for human flourishing, for human joy and pleasure and satisfaction, if we want to know these things, we, 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 rec- we must recognize we can't know them unless something happens to us, unless we, as Jesus says, are born again. To see the kingdom, Jesus is saying, to be part of the kingdom, to be awakened and to have eyes open to the realities of God in this world, the new birth is essential. It is necessary. That's the point Jesus is making in this conversation with Nicodemus as it begins. But this is also the point that is made by by John the author earlier in this same gospel. So if you flip back just a page or two, depending on on the size of your Bible and the size of your print, if you turn back to John chapter 1, at the very beginning of John's gospel, he makes a similar point. So there in chapter 1, you're probably familiar with with the prologue and and how it identifies Jesus as as the, the eternal word who's equal with God, who is with God, who took on flesh. That's the beginning of John chapter 1, but if you skip down to verse 9 of John 1, John not only affirms the need for the new birth, but he also, in a significant way, connects the new birth with faith in Jesus or with believing in Jesus, which which is a connection I want us to, to make sure and recognize. So in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world, though the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And so here in John 1, John is making the connection that to be born again, this what we are in need of, to be born again, to be uh, to be able to see the kingdom of God, to, to understand this world, this requires belief or faith in Jesus. And so he's connecting these two to, to enter the kingdom and to believe in Jesus. He's connecting them. Which on a side note makes perfect sense that the Holy Spirit is the one who would be the source of this new birth because the primary role of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus. So, so we'll say more about this in a few minutes, but just know that as we enter the kingdom, we enter the kingdom by being born again, and the primary, the primary result of being born again is understanding the identity of Jesus. So he, that's the connection there, and, and that's what he does in John 1, 9 through 12. So the, the, the connection, verse 12, to all who did receive him, here's the receiving him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of 
blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So there's the connection. Those who believed in his name, those who received Christ, he became, he gave the right to become children of God, who we shouldn't miss are born of God. More specifically, we could say born of the spirit of God. And so John is teaching here in chapter one of his gospel that being part of God's family, that being born again, that seeing the kingdom is dependent upon one's relationship with Jesus. The two are connected. Specifically, being born again or having or, or entering the kingdom is specifically related and connected to one's faith or trust in Jesus. It's as if John is writing to tell us that if we want to be part of God's family, if we want to be born again, we must recognize the unique identity of Jesus. Which, if you fast forward to John chapter 3, I think is what Jesus is talking about in his conversation with Nicodemus. I mean, think about why Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Think about the comment that Nicodemus makes. It concerns the identity of Jesus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus saying, hey, we know who you are. We just wanted some more info. He's coming, not understanding who Jesus is, but saying, hey, I know, I know who you are. He's coming, Nicodemus is coming, knowing that Jesus is just a rabbi. Sent by God, yes, but still just a rabbi, nothing more than a rabbi. And John wants you, know, wants you to know, wants me to know, that as long as Nicodemus is confused about the identity of Jesus, forever long that is, for that long Nicodemus is going to be in need of a new birth. Because those who accept Jesus, those who receive him, who believe in his name, they know, not that Jesus is a mere rabbi or a good teacher or a good moral example, but those who come to him in faith know him. And they know his unique identity, the Messiah, the Savior, the, the, the one sent by God. And John says that those who know him in that way are born of God. Now, I just want to emphasize this connection that I'm making here, that I see John making here, specifically that being born again and faith in Jesus are inseparable. You don't have one without the other. You can't be born again and not have faith in Jesus in the same way that you can't have faith in Jesus and not be born again. The, the two are inseparable. We'll say more about this in a minute. But, but, but just, just be clear here that John's understanding of being born again, of entering the kingdom, cannot be abstracted from faith in Jesus. And that's why John's, John's entire gospel is written for the explicit purpose of, of helping us believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That, that's why he writes his gospel. Look at John 20, 31. That's what he says. I wrote these that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name, eternal life. And so John writes his gospel recounting the unique life and ministry of Jesus in order that we and his first readers might behold Jesus and recognize, not like Nicodemus, that he's just another rabbi, but we might recognize that he, as we put our faith in him, that his identity is unique. He's the one who took on flesh to save fallen men and women. He's one who died to, to give us life. And so here at the outset, as we're, as, we're, as we're working our way through this, recognize, believer, you have been born again. You have been given eyes to see the kingdom. In fact, more than that, you've entered the kingdom. You've become a recipient of eternal life. And all of that is a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. You have been born again, and that by God's Spirit, because the Spirit gives new life. The Spirit causes those dead in sins and trespasses to be born again. No one is born again apart from the sovereign, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And so just, just be reminded, Christian, 
And I said this several weeks ago, and I'll say it again now. If, if you have a genuine love for Jesus, if you recognize that Jesus was not just a normal man, but was your Messiah, your Savior, who, who died for you and who rose for you, if you recognize the identity of Jesus and you seek to worship and honor him, if you can, can say with, with hymn writer Fanny Crosby, if you can honestly say, take all this world, but, but give me Jesus, if that's true of you, any of those things, it's because of the supernatural work of the Spirit in your heart. This is why faith in Christ and the new birth are inseparable. They are both directly tied to the work of the Holy Spirit. Praise God for the work of the Spirit. The new birth is necessary because without it, there is not faith in Christ and there is not entrance into the kingdom of God. The new birth is necessary. It's also necessary because without the new birth, you and I are still dead in our sins and trespasses. We're alienated from our creator. Without the new birth, we are still plagued with a sin problem. The new birth is necessary because, because of sin, right? If, if, there, if sin isn't a problem, there's no need for us to put our faith in Jesus as our substitute. If, if sin isn't a problem, there's no need for us to be born again. However, both are necessary because there is a problem, we are plagued with a sin problem. Nicodemus was in need of a new birth, and we are in need of new birth because we are naturally born in sin, dead in trespasses and sins, slaves. And so while everyone watching has, has received or been given physical life through natural birth, our natural birth is not accompanied by spiritual life. In fact, our natural birth is accompanied by spiritual death, right? That, that's, that's the irony Every single person that, that's brought into this life physically is already dead spiritually. We are born dead. We are born slaves to sin. We're born to our first parents, Adam and Eve. This means, and this is crucial to, to our understanding of, of, of the gospel and, and the urgency of the gospel, but this means that not every child, not everyone born in this world is a child of God. In fact... Everyone is by nature a child of wrath, an enemy of God. I mean, that, that's just the natural state of, of, of the world that we are born into. We are born sinful. We are conceived in iniquity, as David would say. That was true of Nicodemus, and that was or still is true of you and me. And, and this, the, 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 the nature of sin and our enslavement to sin is the bad news of Christianity, the bad news of the gospel, the reality is that you are worse than you think you are and you can't fix your problem. You can't make yourself be born again. You can't remedy the issue. But there's also good news to this gospel. There's good news of Christianity and that is that God is so much more gracious than you or I could ever imagine because he loved the world by sending his son to die on a cross and raised him three days later, that by believing in him, in the Son, you and I might have eternal life, that we might enter the kingdom. God has made a way for us. God has made a way for our sin to be dealt with, that we might live forever. And so I just, I just want to pause here, make, make a first point of application, which is simply this. You need the new birth. I need the new birth. We need to be born again. No one is exempted from the necessity of the new birth. To, to, to understand this, it might be helpful to pause and recognize who it was that asked this question to Jesus in John chapter 3. 
And so if you're not a Christian, you, you should hear who this man was, who asked Jesus this question, who, the man to whom Jesus said, you must be born again. Because maybe if you're watching, maybe, maybe you think that you're a pretty good person. Maybe you think like, like so many others that your good outweighs your bad and that as long as you try your best, that, that, that God will be gracious and accept you. Well, well, consider who Jesus was talking to. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, a, a member of the Pharisees. He was a righteous man, a law keeper, a teacher of the law, an expert in the things of God. This is an upright man, one who is familiar with the law of God and the things of God. This, this was not the outcast sinner that Jesus was often found ministering to. This was Nicodemus, and from a human perspective, his good far outweighed his bad. From a human perspective, if if anyone could see the kingdom, it was him. Yet Jesus says otherwise. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. One commentator says, if Nicodemus, with his knowledge and gifts and understanding, position and integrity, if Nicodemus cannot enter the promised kingdom by virtue of his standing and works, What hope is there for anyone who seeks salvation along such lines? The answer is none. There's no hope for anyone who seeks salvation along such lines. We can't make it on our own. Because even for Nicodemus, there was a need for a radical transformation. Even for Nicodemus, there was a need for the generation of of new life, of a new birth. Even Nicodemus needed something drastic. One commentator says, by the term born again, Jesus means not just the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. And if Nicodemus needed it, surely you and I need it as well. You must be born again. And this happens by the work of the Spirit, which leads us to our second point. Our second point, the source of the new birth. The source of the new birth. The new birth is God-ordained. It only occurs by the work of God's Spirit. So, so look back there in John chapter 3. After Nicodemus is told that he must be born again, verse 4, he says to Jesus, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said he must be born again. Now, the main point that Jesus makes to Nicodemus here is that the new birth is the result of the work of the Spirit. The new birth is Spirit-given. We see that in verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The new birth, the spiritual birth, is only given by the Spirit. It must be that way. This, This spiritual birth, this new birth, does not come by blood or flesh or the will of man. Right? It comes by the Spirit of God. This new birth, this new life, it's, it's not something that you or I can just make happen or manifest. That's not how it works. It must be, it only must be God who causes us to be born again. I mean, listen to this quote. Uh, one one um, theologian, John Murray, explains what happens at regeneration this way. Now, I, I, this picture, this drastic change, listen to how he describes it. He says, God affects a change which is radical and all-pervasive, a change which cannot be explained in terms of any combination, permutation, or accumulation of human resources, a change which is nothing less than a new creation by him who calls the things that be not as though they were. 
the one who spake, and it was done, who commanded, and it stood fast. This, in a word, is regeneration. God affects this change. This change doesn't just happen. This change isn't something that you can experience or observe and go on with your life as normal when it happens. It is a drastic change, and it is only accomplished by God. The nature of the new birth is such that God is the only one who can bring it about, and he does by his Spirit. The Spirit is the source. The Spirit is the one who regenerates. I mean, this point, I think, is clear simply by by recognizing the imagery that Jesus uses here. This picture of of birth, of being born. Birth is not, does not convey the, the idea of mutual cooperation. Right? You don't play part in being born. When you're born, you're passive. I mean, we, we had a daughter just over six months ago, and if, if our little daughter could talk, she would say, I, I was in the womb, and it was dark for a long time. Then all of a sudden, light, I was born. When, when babies are born, babies can't take credit. And especially on a day like today, we should recognize that all credit in birth goes to the mother. Dad, you played no part. I played no part. It is all the mother. Mother deserves all the credit. Happy Mother's Day. Birth is something where babies are passive. And I think that's the image here where Jesus says, you are born again, it happens to you. You don't know how it happens. You don't know when or how it's going to happen. It just happens and you know it happens because you're alive. I think another imagery or another image that's used in scripture is, is that of death and life. Think about the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. So Lazarus is dead. His body stinks. He's in the tomb. He's as dead as dead can be. And Jesus comes, moves the stone away, and Lazarus is made alive. He, he, he was dead, and then he's alive. Lazarus, in this transformation, this drastic change, Lazarus was passive, The voice of Jesus raised him from the dead. Jesus' word saying, come forth, is what affects the change. Lazarus does not walk out of the grave and flex his muscles as if, look what I did, everyone. He's passive. All he knows is I was dead, but now I'm alive. When someone is born again, this is what happens. They are acted upon. They don't do the acting. If you're a Christian, simply ask yourself, do I take credit for my salvation? Do I take credit do I deserve a claim for, for what's happened to me? Do you boast in, in your role? Well, well I, I played a little bit of a part in my salvation. I know Jesus did most of it, but, but come on, I get a little bit of credit. That's not how the Christian thinks. The Christian says it's all of grace. It's all God from first to last. No one who truly understands the nature of salvation would claim a, a, even a little, minute role in it. It is all of God. For Christians, when when we were transferred from death to life in a moment, in a second, it was not our doing. We were born again. We were saved. We're passive. It happens to us. And it happens when the Spirit of God gives new life, causes to be born again. That's a point here. Now, looking back at John 3, notice verse 5. This is is probably one of the most confusing or misinterpreted verses in John 3. But but this verse, I'm going to say also points to the fact that the Spirit is the one who must give new birth. So look there at verse 5. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. No, I don't know your background. I don't know uh, your upbringing. But I can almost guarantee that you've been taught, or maybe you have taught, 
that here in verse 5, that being born of the water and the spirit means that you must be born twice. That water is natural birth and spirit is is spiritual birth, that, that the water means the, the birth of, of the natural baby. So you must be born physically and you must be born spiritually. Right? So people read verse 5 and say that's what it means. Well, that's not what Jesus means. I don't think that's what Jesus means. I'll be, I'll be a little more gracious, but I'm, I'm almost certain that's not what he means here. And, and here's why. First, look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, there's a statement. If you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Then verse 5 makes the point, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So these are parallel statements that, that make, in this context, this, closely, uh, to, this close together, they make the same point. Which, as parallel, they're both referring to the same thing. And this, the, the reference is to the new birth, the one new birth. And so, I would say that in light of the context being born of the water and spirit is simply another way of referring to being born again. So, so being born of water and spirit is just a reference to the one act of being born again. And being born of water and spirit describes what must happen to enter the kingdom. And so what is the spirit and water? What, what is this a reference to? Well, I think one, one idea for us to, to think through this is Jesus rebukes Nicodemus for not understanding which, which I think would say, well, there, there must be something, some, some precedent in the Old Testament that, that would point to this at least, at least hint at this, that, that there's something like a new birth or a, 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 a washing of water and a, a giving life through spirit, which is exactly, if you remember last week, exactly what Ezekiel 36 points to. And so I think this, this born of water and spirit is a reference to the, the promise of Ezekiel 36. So listen to Ezekiel 36. So, so in your mind, have... Have, you must be born of, of water and spirit. And now listen to what Ezekiel 36, the, the promise of what's going to happen in this new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey, to obey my rules. So do you notice the transformation that's promised, a cleansing and a reviving or a rebirth of, of something new? I think that's what Jesus means when he's talking about being born of water and of spirit. He means that one must experience what Ezekiel promised, which is exactly what happens when one is born again. You're, you're cleansed Right, this water is an image of cleansing. You're, you're cleansed, your sins are forgiven, but, but that's not enough. It's not just cleansing that we receive. We, we're also born again. We're given the spirit and new life. And this is what happens. So I think this is Jesus saying, if you, want, if you want to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. Verse three, that's what might happen. If you, if you want to enter the kingdom, you must be cleansed and be given new life. It's referring to the, the, the one instance of born again. When you're born again, you are born of water in the Spirit, I think is what Jesus would say. And this happens, as we saw in verse 6, when the Spirit gives birth. No one can be born again except by the Spirit. Well, there, there are several other passages that we could look at here as we, as we look at the Spirit as the source of new birth. But, but I'll just mention one more, and that's Titus 3, uh, verse 4 and 5. So, so listen to, to Paul as he's talking to Titus in chapter 3. In verse 4, he says... So, so in, up in, in verses 2 and 3 says, well, this is what you once were. You, you once were 
um, living in these ways. But, verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. So, so he didn't save us because, because we were good, notice, but according to his own mercy. So God saves us by his own mercy, but notice how Paul continues. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so this idea of washing of regeneration and renewal, this is the same emphasis on water and spirit. The main point being that we were saved by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives life. Now, one other thing, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I do have this in my notes as a side note. Um, And looking at the time, I think it's worth pursuing this thought. Um, But the new birth, so if you look at the New Testament, so, so... the, the Spirit is the source, but there's two instances in the New Testament where the, the new birth is also attributed to the word of truth or, or the word of God. And so James 1.18 and 1 Peter 1.23. So James 1.18, I'll just read to you James 1.18. Um, James writes, of his own will, that is the Father, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And then 1 Peter 1, verse 23 Peter writes, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And so in both these cases, the new birth is connected with not the spirit, or at least on on the surface it's not connected with the spirit, but with the word of truth or the word of God, the good news of the gospel, which may seem strange since I'm saying that the spirit is the source of the new birth. Why wouldn't James or Peter give credit to the spirit? Why would they say what's the word of truth, the gospel that is the source. Well, I think these verses make the case even more convincing that the Spirit is the one who brings about the new birth, and then he does so through pre- preaching the gospel, because, think about it, the main purpose of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus, to glorify Christ. And so it wouldn't fit with the person and work of the Spirit to be the one to get glory and honor for the new birth. And so Peter's not going to say, you're born again by the Spirit. What great news. He's saying, no, you're born again by, by the good news of Jesus. And the Spirit takes the good news and causes you to be born again. It's as if James and Peter want to honor the primary purpose of the Spirit and and avoid any misunderstanding. They want the Spirit's most significant work, the new birth, to result in not the praise of the Spirit, but in the praise and glorification of Christ. And so they say it's the word of truth, the good news, the gospel of Jesus that causes you to be born again. And so the new birth, it, it appears from, from these verses in light of the, the, the other truth in, in John 3, that the new birth is a divinely orchestrated process by which the Spirit grants new life through the gospel of Christ. And so the gospel is the vehicle or the means by which the Spirit grants new birth. One hears the good news and one believes when the Spirit gives new life. And the Spirit does so in such a way that, that even in accomplishing this miracle that even in this supernatural work of regeneration, the Spirit does not take center stage. The spotlight is still on Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and raised again, which is exactly where the Spirit would have the spotlight. He wants to glorify Christ. Well, then finally, let's look at our third point. Our third point, the effects of the new birth. The effects of the new birth. In this final section, I just want to lay out three results or three effects of the new birth. Um, a, lot, there, a lot more could be said. These are just three significant effects that, that I just want to highlight here. And so I, I want to begin by, by saying the first effect 
of the new birth is faith. Okay, now, now there's a lot of discussion, a lot of theological discussion surrounding the specifics of, of how these events in salvation, this, this order of salvation, how it actually plays out. And, and I don't want to go too deep into that discussion, but I want to say that regeneration, that the new birth is, is the first experiential reality of salvation. In other words, regeneration, this new birth that we're talking about, comes first before anything else. The new birth is the first step. The sovereign act of God who by his spirit gives us new life, is what happens first. God does it, and after he does it, after he makes us alive, then comes a whole host of other things, the most important, the first effect being faith in Christ. In other words, it seems most likely to me that Scripture teaches that we're born again before anything else, even before we have faith. In fact, I would say that we must be born again before anything else can happen. A dead man, a dead woman, cannot put his or her faith in Christ. No one can come to the Father unless drawn by the Spirit, unless raised again, given new birth. Listen again to to John Murray. It should be specially noted that that even faith that Jesus is the Christ is the effect of regeneration. Regeneration is the beginning of all saving grace in us, and all saving grace in exercise on our part proceeds from the fountain of regeneration. We are not born again by faith or repentance or conversion. We repent and believe because we have been regenerated. So, so it's not as though I put my faith in Jesus and then I'm born again. So, so in evangelism, we, we shouldn't say, hey, just, just believe in Jesus and then you'll be born again. No, that's not the process. We we elevate Jesus, we magnify Jesus, we proclaim the gospel, and we trust the Spirit is going to give the new birth so that Jesus is glorious in the eyes of the sinner. No one can say in truth that Jesus, this is Murray continuing the quote, no one can say in truth that Jesus is the Christ except by regeneration of the Spirit. And that is one of the ways by which the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. The embrace of Christ in faith is the first evidence of regeneration, and only thus may we know that we have been regenerated. Here we're getting back to the connection between new birth and faith in Jesus. That's why I made that connection earlier. Being born again and faith in Christ are so closely related that they could almost be considered two sides of the same coin. That's why I said earlier, you can't have one without the other. They're always together. And from the human perspective, they're often indistinguishable. So, so, so that there's no, there's no passing of time. You're, you're born again in your faith in Jesus. It's all at once. I heard the gospel and I believed. Right? So from a human perspective, they're, they're almost indistinguishable. Nevertheless, regeneration, the great spiritual work of the Spirit, must come even before saving faith, which is why faith is the first effect of the new birth and the headwaters from which all the other blessings and benefits flow. And so faith is the first effect And so if your faith is in Christ today, it is because you've been born again by the Spirit. That is a first effect of the Spirit. Second effect of the new birth is union with Christ. The new birth, which which leads to faith or is joined by faith, also leads to union with Christ. When the Spirit causes us to be born again, one of the main things that he does is he unites us to Christ in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his life. One, one church reformer 
says, and there's a one-on quote, and listen to the language he uses here. As long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no use or value to us. All that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. You know, so so all, the, all the work of Christ is, is, is as, as long as it remains outside of us, it's not beneficial. It, it's necessary for us to be united to him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that's what happens by the Spirit. The Spirit unites us. The Spirit is the bond that unites us to Christ. If I'm not united to Christ, I cannot benefit from any of his work. The good news is that union with Christ is what the Spirit does. He himself is the bond who unites us to the living Christ. And this goes back to our discussion on, on John, John 16 in this upper room discourse. Jesus, as he sends his Spirit, that the Spirit is not simply a replacement or, or a fill-in, but, but someone, the Spirit comes as someone who would mediate the very presence of Christ to the disciples, to believers, and that's why in the New Testament, often the Spirit is so closely associated with the presence of Christ that he's referred to as the Spirit of Christ. It is, it is the Spirit so that Jesus can say, I'm not going to leave you, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to be with you through the Spirit who's going to mediate my presence to you and is going to unite you to me. So we're united to Christ by the work of the Spirit. This is why the resurrection is so central to the gospel and to the Christian life. If, if Christ is not raised, we're united to him. We're, we're still in, in, in our graves spiritually. We're not alive, but because he was raised, we in our union with him have been raised with him. And we now receive in part the spiritual life that Christ received when he was raised from the dead. Which is the last effect or another effect of the new birth, and that is union or that is a new life. So, so union with Christ, another effect is new life. As a result of this new birth and faith in Christ and union with him, we receive new life. And I say it's closely identified with our union because, as I just mentioned, because Christ has been raised, we now experience new life. That's why Paul can say we've been raised with Christ, or as why Paul can say it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives. And the life we live, we live by faith in the Son, united to him and living the resurrected life. This is why in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this is, that's the language of union, if anyone is in Christ, what is true of him? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Union and new life go hand in hand. To be united with Christ is to have new life. And the final effect that I'll mention here is that to be united to Christ to be a, a receiver of the new birth means, brings with it, the final effect is that you have a new family. The new birth followed by faith in Christ, union with him, resurrection life also brings with it membership in a new family. To be born again is to be born into God's family. That, that's, what, that's what happens when you're born again. You're, you're now part of a new family. You're part of God's family. And while, while getting brothers and sisters is significant, right? That's, that's part of why this, this quarantine is so hard. We, we can't gather with our family. We, we can't meet together and encourage one another. So, so having brothers and sisters is really significant. And it's a benefit. But the most significant familial relationship that you get when you're born again is the relationship with God 
the Father. When you're born again, you have a new dad. You have God as your Father. This is why the the Lord's Prayer that I prayed earlier, that I read earlier, it begins the way it does because that that is a significant benefit of God's people. They have, we have God as our Father. We can pray, our Father who art in heaven. That that is not the privilege of everyone naturally. We aren't naturally born children of God, but as a result of the new birth, we have God as our Father. In fact, in a powerful passage in Romans 8, Paul says there that we have received the spirit of adoption by whom, do you remember what Paul says, we cry by the spirit of adoption, we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit who gives us new birth also makes us children of God. We have Him as our Father. And this is why in John chapter 20, fascinating, end of John's Gospel, in John chapter 20, Jesus has been raised, and He's appearing. This is His resurrection appearance. In chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, He appears to Mary, Mary Magdalene, who's gone to the tomb, and and Jesus says to her, verse 17, he says, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But, notice what Jesus says to Mary, go tell my, not disciples, he says, go tell my brothers. That's an intentional word, go tell my brothers and say to them, notice what Mary's supposed to tell the disciples. Tell them that I told you, Mary, to tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. And Mary went and she announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And then she said all that he had told her. And so Jesus, on the other side of the resurrection, teaches and tells us that his resurrection changes the relationship between Jesus and his disciples, right? He now calls them brother. But more significantly, it changes the relationship between the disciples and the father, I am going to my Father and your Father. Jesus has received new life, resurrection life, and and because of the disciples' relationship to Jesus, they also have been given new life, and they have a new relationship with the Father. And their relationship as brothers to Jesus is why they have a new relationship to the Father. Their faith in Jesus is, is what grants them this this new relationship with the Father. And so as believers in Christ, as those who've been united to him, like the disciples, we have a new family. And all of this, remember, all of this is a result of the Spirit's work, the Spirit who gives life, new birth, the Spirit who generates. Now, a lot more could be said Uh, Maybe a lot more should be said uh, about the effects of the new birth. And and we'll continue next week looking at the work of the Spirit. But we're going to stop here. And I just want to leave you with the words of the same Apostle John uh, from his first letter. So in in John chapter 3, I just, these words are are, are encouraging and are powerful in light of all that we've said. Especially the new family. Listen to John, 1 John chapter 3 verse 1. The Apostle says, see what kind of love The Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the sons of God. 
Brothers and sisters, be encouraged this morning because of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in granting you and I new birth. We are now not just called children of God, but we are children of God. We have a Father who cares for us and loves for us, loves us and provides for us. Let us learn to continually look to Him and trust Him and rejoice and glorify Him by loving the Son. Let, let me pray for us as, as we close.